First Timothy 1, 12 to 17. And let us remember as I read, you are hearing the very word of God itself, breathed out by the Holy Spirit upon Paul. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And with that, we end the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Paul is giving his witness. Here he is, what he considers the foremost of all sinners, basically because he was one who prosecuted church, killed Christians, railed against them, and he said, yet God, yet Jesus forgave me my sins. He rescued me from my own sinfulness, gave me new life, new hope. And he says to the king, and I think when he says to the king, he's not talking about the Father, he's talking about Jesus, to the King immortal, there is invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. One of the joys of uh, having lived a long life is you get to be at the beginning of some movements. Uh, I came, Christ called me to himself in August of 1969. That was about the time in which the charismatic movement began to hit the mainline churches. We had had Pentecostalism, and I'm not that old, okay? But we had Pentecostalism, but the charismatic movement began to hit mainline churches, and it began to explode. Now, I'm a little slow, so it took me another 12 or 13 years before I entered into that. But it was it was moving, and it was making a impact upon denominations, uh, even the Reformed denomination. The other one is, this is about the time that contemporary Christian music began, CCM. And so I was there when Keith Green began to sing. And when Evie, you know, how we have singers who only have one name, Madonna, others. We had our own singers with only one name, Evie. And you say, Evie, every, everybody knew who Evie was and some of the great early stars. One of them happened to be Bill Gaither, who just lives down the road here, and his wife, Gloria. And they wrote some terrific songs. In fact, they were so terrific, they collected them into a hymn book with a lot of other hymns and produced their own hymn book. That's one way to sell your music. But it was, uh, it was one of those early songs that Gloria Gaither wrote that always impressed me. 
Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about that name. Some of you have heard it. You also now know why I always had an agreement with my choir director. She would not preach before the choir sang. I don't sing when I preach. <laughs> but that epitomizes and summarizes the, the uh, Lord's Day 11 of the uh, Catechism. Jesus, there's something about that name. Or you could recall all the titles that there are of Jesus. I, I brought with me a page that I have in one of my devotional notebooks. Titles and names of Jesus. I like five and a half by eight and a half. Two sides, three sides, into the fourth side. Double column. Uh, about a 10 or, eight, or 10 or 11 point font. I forget how many there are here. But these are the names of Jesus in the Bible. Angel of God's presence, anointed, creator, dayspring, deliverer, faithful witness, firstborn, firstfruits, uh, God blessed forever, man of sorrows. In fact, one person I know was asked to speak at a convocation for a school, for a seminary. And all he did was bring up those names and went down through them one by one and spent a half an hour, 45 minutes listing the names of Jesus. And he got big bucks for it. I'm going, oh man, did I miss my call. <laughs> if you can do that and get away with it, oh yeah. But I guess you have to have a PhD in a lot of books written. But the, the scripture is just filled with a variety of names but the one name that always sticks out is Jesus. Jesus. You ever figure out why people use the, that name in vain? I mean, why don't they say, oh, George. Oh, Sally. Oh, Andy. Because they know if they use the Andy, I'll get him. <laughs> no. You ever wonder why they have to use that name when they swear and they cuss? It's because of the preciousness and the power of that name. So, we're into the second section of the Apostles' Creed, Lord's, Lord's Day 11. And in that, we begin one of the largest sections about one subject. We are moving into the second section of the Apostles' Creed. We've talked about God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we looked at him not only as who he is as God the Father, but his providence, that everything that happens, happens because God has allowed it or makes it to happen. And because of that, then they move, the, the uh, writers of the Catechism move into talking about Jesus. Now, 
there are going to be 10 days, 10 Lord's days in this catechism. We're going to talk about Jesus. Now remember, there are only 52 Lord's days. I did the math. That's almost 20% of the catechism deals with one person. And in the next three weeks, we're going to deal with three names of that one person. Lord's Day 11 deals with Jesus the Savior. Lord's Day 12 Jesus deals with Christ, that is the Anointed One. And Lord's Day 13 deals with He is Son and Lord. They put two together. Uh, they, could have, they probably could have done 53 Sundays because every once in a while in a year you have 53 Sundays, but they didn't think of that. The first section separates us from all the polytheists and the Greek and Roman pantheon and the pagans and the animists and, uh, and all the hedonists because it says there's one God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. The second section deals and separates us from the Jews, Judaism, and Islam. Because they say there's only one God. They're monotheists. However, Jesus, there is no trinity. And therefore, Jesus was simply a wonderful human being. A marvelous man. A great teacher. Of course, if a great teacher taught what he taught, he wouldn't be a great teacher. And he was an example of what it is to be a human and to live as a human. But they do not call him God. And they do not call him Savior. And they have no sense in which he is more than just a wonderful person. Uh, maybe the highest of all people, but just a wonderful person. So we're going to take a, these next ten times that I'm teaching to look at it. Let's take a look at Lord's Day one, 11. Excuse me. Question 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, in quotes, that is, Savior? And the answer, because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in any other. Let's break down that answer. He saves us from our sins. And they quote Matthew one twenty one: She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember, this is the angel talking to Joseph when he had heard that Mary was pregnant and he was trying to figure out a righteous, just way to, in essence, divorce her because back then an engagement was non-dissolvable. You had to have a right of divorce even before you went through the marriage ceremony. It was as if you were married, but you were not co cohabitating. It's all preparation. And he is wondering how, and the angel comes to give him not only counsel, but uh, to help him. He says, no, what she's bearing is from the Holy Spirit. You will call his name Jesus. Jesus was not an uncommon name back then. There are those who have gone through the records and why they do this, I have no idea. They must have a Saturday afternoon on their hands or something. They go through the records and they found out Jesus was the fourth most common name in that time. 
Now we have children who are who have common names: Daniel, Joshua, Laura, Christina, Jeremiah. But we have one daughter who has no well, very few. Mary Lee. It's a combination of Peg's grandmother's names, Mary and Lee. And once in a while we run against a Mary Lee, but that's not too often. Jesus was coming. He had a whole bunch of Jesuses running around. Now, fortunately, Nazareth was a small town. So when Mary leaned out the back window and called him for supper and said, Jesus, there weren't too many who would come to the house. But in that time, fourth common name. So, and they, they named their child Jesus because of the importance of that name. It was a name that described the person. For instance, in my background, I have ancestors who are named Baker. They come from England. And the reason they were given that name, because they were John the Baker. And they truncated it. In fact, some of your names probably come from very thing. I pity the poor guy who's called George the Candlestick Maker. <laughs> Man. That would, be, that would be cumbersome, wouldn't it? But Baker was an occupation, and it became a last name. Gerhardt means strong spear chucker. Where that came from, I have no idea. <laughs> probably I have warriors in my background. So they were strong. I mean, they could take that spear and throw it way down the battlefield. So... That's, but it, that's where it comes from. And a name has a very specific meaning back then. It's not like we throw out names that are family names or, it's a nice name, I just like it. Flower, sunshine. I, I told you, I came out of the 60s and 70s. <laughs> this is the time when you called your kids like that. Well, some did. The name tells you a lot about the person especially the biblical names. And so when you read uh, of who a person is, like Abram turned to Abraham, you do a little research on what that name means. Well, in the Greek, Jesus, which is uh, a translation of Hebrew names that I'll get to in a minute, Jesus does mean one who saves. It also, also is a, a remembrance. We're talking about a historical person. This is not some myth. This is not some ideal. This is not some thought. This is a historical person that lived in a certain age, uh, in a certain country, with certain parents, and with certain uh, brothers and sisters. And, and you cannot divorce the person from his own age. And we are talking about one whose life was so significant to his followers that they put together biographies to tell you about him. They are called bios, which that's the Greek term. Uh, they're biographies, but they're not like our biographies. Our biographies usually begin at the family uh, the lineage, and then you get into the early childhood, and then you get in through the age in which they did something great, and finally you say, 
on such and such a date, he died. He breathed his last while his family was gathered around the bed and his wife cried. Or her husband cried. Take your pick. And they then give a little summary. Gospels of Bios are selective biographies. They only pick the parts of the story of the individual that they want to use to push home a message. Matthew talks about Jesus being the Messiah, who we're going to take a look at next week, the Christ. He is writing to a Jew Jewish audience. Uh, Mark is writing to a Roman audience, so you see a man of action and power. And Luke is writing to an audience of, of people who are the outcasts. And so he writes about the outcasts and how Jesus was one of those and how he ministered. And John is writing to the philosophers, so he's showing the eternal significance of who Jesus is. But in both of those, they show what they're doing, at least in Luke and John, they show what they're doing. Theophilus, I have written these things for my witnesses and for ministers of the word that you may have an orderly account of the life of Jesus. John writes and says, these things have been written so that you might believe and in believing have eternal life. So they're dealing with a, a specific individual, but they're dealing, especially the Gospels, in a way in which will drive the point home to their specific audience. But it is a person, Jesus. And when people heard that name, they would understand. He's one who saves. Now the question always is, from what does he save? I think it was the fourth most common name is because the one things that the people of Israel of Palestine, of that area, wanted back then was to throw off the Roman Empire. They would love to have had a country like what that was under King David and Solomon that went from Egypt up to the Euphrates River that took all of that area that was one of the powers of the world. And to do that, you'd have to throw out Rome. And in to do that, you want, that's how you wanted someone to save them. Save, save us from Rome and bring back in the kingdom we had under David. Well, there's also another meaning from the word and what the word would say to him because that's the Hebrew expression of the word Jesus. Jesus is Greek. In Hebrew, you have the word Joshua or Yeshua. And sometimes you'll still hear that word Yeshua. That means one who saves. Uh, if you remember your Bible history, of course you do, right? <laughs> if you remember your Bible history, Jesus is Yeshua, Joshua, was a servant of Moses, one of the two spies that came in with a good report. Yes, we can do it. This is ours. They are ours. We will conquer. Got outvoted by the majority. That's why you'd never have a democracy. <laughs> Uh, and he is given the reins and he is told to lead the people from the wilderness and their travelings into the promised land. To conquer the promised land. And then to, to set up the kingdom. Excuse me. He, he's called to focus on the word. This word of the Lord will not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate upon it day and night over and over and over again. It will be before you. That is the beauty of, of smartphones. You can carry your word wherever 
you have it so you can think about it. When you're in the elevator and you've got 30 seconds, you bunch it up and you read it. That's what you do, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but uh, he called to focus. And finally, he, he was called to, to call his people to follow the Lord above all else. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord, was one of his last sayings to his people. So when you heard the name Jesus, you heard the name Joshua, and you thought, in the word, rescue us, or, or help us to get rid of the, the enemies of our land, and ultimately to have total obedience and commitment to the Lord. Or there was another name, Hosea, a prophet, as another form of Yeshua. And Hosea is uh, a person, he, he was called to a great life. I mean, if you want a health, wealth, and prosperity guy, this is it. He was called to marry a harlot who had other children. He was called to have children by this harlot. He was called to allow her to leave the family and go back to her practice. Do you understand how embarrassing that would be in your village? How horrible that would be as a reflection upon you? That even a harlot won't stay with you? But at the same time, a little bit later on, he's called by God to buy her back. She's on the slave block. Take your own money. Purchase her. And then when she comes to you, you tell her that she has to live a holy life with you. Now, who does it sound like? That's what God was doing through Hosea. I am a God of love, and I love you that even though you've rebelled against me and you've gone toward a, a variety of idols, I am willing to buy you back, but then I call you to live a holy life. And I'm calling you to return to the Lord. What does that sound like? The kingdom of God is at hand. Behold, repent. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. And what is the good news? The good news is one word. Jesus. That's why the kingdom was at hand. The king was in their midst, though they didn't see him. And the good news is not Romans Road and four spiritual laws and that. The good news is Jesus. And that's because it's the name above all names. It's a name that will stand when kings and kingdoms fall. That's in those two characters you have a type of what Jesus was meant to be. And that's who he is. And so the catechism could say, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is Savior? The answer, because he saves us from his sins. Now, the big question is how? And we've gone over this a few times, and you've, you've heard the how enough times, but let's just review it for those who may be new here, which we hope happens more and more, right? There is his active obedience, 
where he came to live a perfect life. That's why the Gospels, although they spend most of their time dealing with the last week in the cross, they deal with his life. Born of the Virgin Mary, as we're going to take a look at it in a few Lord's days. But he lived and he perfectly obeyed his father in his will, in his way, in his word. He was always asking, Dad, what, what am I supposed to do today? That was his daytimer. That was his calendar. How am I supposed to act today? And he, was, he faced the same temptations that we did and that we do, uh, especially growing up as kids and going into those early years. He knows exactly what we have, have to go through. But he did the will of his father. He obeyed his word without fail, without arguing. Oh, Dad, do you really want me to do that? Yeah. Yeah. And now he has lived a perfect life. That's his act of obedience. So that now he has something to give to us that we do not have because we are sons of Adam. Because we are those who cannot have a perfect life even for one second. We cannot. But he has something to give to us. Then there's the passive obedience. What he allowed to be done to him. And that is not that he just sat back. In fact, in some ways he orchestrated what took place. Pilate, I think, would talk to him and he would say, Aren't you going to say anything? Aren't you going to give a defense? Don't you have some kind of lawyer? Mum's the word. He was just quiet. He allowed them to go through what he did. I can call th leagues of angels down and, to rescue me. Especially when they were going to start whipping him and taking him out to the cross. But he didn't. That's what it means by passive. He could have acted in certain ways, but he did not. And in doing that, he then under, underwent the agony of the cross. And here again is where we have the, uh, those two great theological words that you all have to remember. It's on the, it's on the test. Expiation, propiation. Expiation means to take away from. And so the one thing that Jesus did on the cross is he can take away the sins that are ours. Propiation means to bring in. It means that he took upon himself the wrath of God. And he bore the penalty of our sins, but he bore the wrath of his own father on the cross for those hours in our stead. One of the most beautiful words in the scripture or phrases is for us, on our behalf. You read it over and over, especially in the epistles. But for us, he took upon ourselves the wrath of God. People say, from what have you been saved? Well, you haven't been saved necessarily from your sins, though that's part of it. What you've been saved most of all from is the wrath of God. Jesus saved you 
from the Father. Because if you were in, if you come into the presence of the Father without Jesus, you are in big, big trouble. A wrath that you cannot bear, but that you'll have to bear. That's what it is. So that's his passive. He would taste death for us, laying in a tomb for those hours. His body would be there. And we're going to look at that when we get to the part that says he died and then he descended into hell. One of the most difficult parts of the Apostles' Creed. But then he rose to new life. And therefore he is able to bestow upon us both propitiation and expiation so that the release of our sins. But even more than that, I mean all that does if you're a debtor And here's zero, and you're way down here at one million, and that's being generous. All expiation and propitiation does is get you back to zero. And even as you follow Christ, you don't do it perfectly. So in and of yourself, you'd never get beyond zero. Well, that's not enough. Who can come to the hill of the Lord? Those who are righteous. Those who have done right. His rising from the dead is the opportunity for him to give to you one million and probably much more than that in his righteousness. And so we say, I'm not saved because I made a confession of faith. I'm not saved because I'm such a good guy after Jesus rescued me. I am saved in and only by the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ being applied to my life. That takes a whole lot of weight off thinking, man, I got to do the right thing. I got I to gotta be the right person. I got to read my Bible every day because if I don't read my Bible every day, God's going to hate me. Now, he loves you because of the righteousness of Christ that's on your life. That's how he saves. He goes to the very core issue of our lives, the curse. And then he goes to the very heart of our misery, our guilt. And then he goes and he creates a new life so that we may live that new life, becoming in practice what we are in position as we move along and as we grow over the years. But it's all because he's the one who has made that. And by sending his spirit, the third part of the, the Apostles' Creed, he gives us even the ability to follow him. One of the problems with Joshua of the Old Testament is that he could lead, but the people had to do it on their own. They came in and they did a, 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 line, a yeah, lineal attack across the middle of the promised land. Then they went north and south and they began to conquer. But eventually they split up in the tribes and Joshua said to them, okay, now it's your job to get rid of all those pesky people in your area because they're going to draw you away from God. And the problem is they never got rid of those pesky people. And they were always like, they were like gnats on a summer night. 
You always had to swat them away, and they always caused problems. Um, you remember the story of Esther? And uh, I'm forgetting the, the antagonist's name. Haman, thank you, Haman. That's when you all go, boo, Haman, boo. <laughs> you get to Haman, and you read where his lineage is. And he was one of those little tribes they were supposed to get rid of. But they didn't. And it comes back to bite them years later. Again, that's a problem when you don't deal with sin in the very beginning. It comes back to bite you at the end. But that's what Jesus does. He, and he gives you the power to be able to do it. And finally he ascends to that place on high from which he rules. Kings and kingdoms may all fall away, but there's something about that name, Jesus. Jesus. So the, uh, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 19, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. I, I like the ESV this way because the New American Standard Bible writes it, new creature. And I, in my warped thinking, I think of the creature of the Black Lagoon. <laughs> Alien. I'm going, I don't want to be that kind of creature, but I am a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's why you can say Jesus saves us from our sins. And then it goes on, and became and because salvation is not to be sought or found in any other. And there's a passage from Acts 4.12 where Peter again preaching, says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men to, by which he must be saved. And remember, he's saying this to the Sanhedrin, who had just a couple, a few weeks before, crucified Christ. And he's saying, that person you, you crucified, he's the only hope you have of salvation. Not your Judaism, not your religiosity, not your rituals, not everything that you do. Only the name of Jesus. The only one who will save. Uh, you can add on verses like John 14, 6. That famous one you see at football games. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or John, 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Uh, that doesn't leave a whole lot of wiggle room, does it? It's pretty well set. You either have the Son or you don't have the Son. You either have life or you don't have life. Have you ever, you, you've been driving around, do you read bumper stickers? I love to read bumper stickers because some of them are, are funny and some of them are seriously flawed. The one that's going around is coexist, written out in all the symbols of different religions. And it's the sense of it, and I've talked to someone who had one of those, and they, she said to me, well, 
Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we just put away our differences and focus on the things we have in common and, you know, just forget those differences? And I looked at her and said, hold it. The difference with Christianity is far exceeds the common things. Yes, we are called even to love our enemies, to do good to them, to help them, to support them, to do everything we can. But there are some things you cannot jettison, and one of them is that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And just like what God would say to Israel through Hosea, I will not have any rival. You are mine. You are my possession. You are my pocket change. That's the idea of treasured possession. You are the one who, for whom I have died. You are mine. I owe you and you owe me. And indeed, I watch over and care for you, the providence of God. And I will have no rival in your life. Not your marriage, not your family, not your service, not your work, not your piety, not your pedigree. Remember Paul, Philippians 3, goes through his pedigree. I am a, I'm an Israelite. If anyone's an Israelite, I am an Israelite. Born an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, that proud small tribe. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was going way beyond all of my contemporaries. I was so zealous for my faith, my Judaism, that I would kill the Christians because I thought they were blaspheming God. I said, all that I count as. We, we Americans like to tone things down. They're rubbish. That's not what it means. You go to a porta potty, you look down the porta potty, that's what it means. All of that I count as garbage. Why? Because Jesus will have no rival. This is in here because this catechism was written in 1563, about 30 years after the Reformation really began to roll. It's after the uh, papal bull was issued on Martin Luther and his life. And the split was really beginning to move between the Roman Catholic Church and what they call the Protestant movement. We call it the Reformation movement because the whole purpose of what Luther and Calvin and all these people were doing was to reform the Catholic Church back to its original focus. And the Roman Catholic Church would say, no, 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 no. All the teachings and traditions and all the things that have piled up over the centuries, they are just as important. And in fact, the way in which we have put together Christianity is a way by which you will live. And one of those is to venerate the saints. Therefore, you pray to them. One of our neighbors has a St. Joseph statue out in his, uh, by his front porch. St. Joseph is a saint of the house. St. Christopher, 
you may see them on hanging from mirrors or on the dashboard because he is the saint of travel. Uh, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day because he is the patron saint of no, Scotland, come on, <laughs> of Ireland. <laughs> he, and, and they venerate them, and they pray to them. The, the biggest issue, and it has always been a big issue, is praying to Mother Mary. Beatles made a great song out of that. Praying to Mother Mary, saying, Mary, intercede with your son on my behalf that he may do this, basically. Hail Mary, full of grace, and going through the rosary time after time after you've committed a sin. As if Mary was somebody special more than us. And as if he had, she would have any more cause to be able to turn her son to do something. As if, not quite, but as if she were the fourth person of the Trinity. And that's what they do. When I was at summer camp, one of the things I was called to do is to take the Catholic children to Mass on Sunday because they had to be there. If they missed it, it was a sin. It was really bad. And we'd have a really bad week. No, we wouldn't. So I'd drive the van out there and I'd take them to the door and let them out and then I'd drive the van to the parking lot. they said, well, aren't you going to come in with us? And I said, no, I can't do that. Because you're going to pray to saints and Mary. And when you walk in there, you are going to drop down and worship a box. They don't worship the crucifix. They worship the box. Because in the box are some of the leftover elements of the bread and the wine. Which they really believe right now is the body and blood of Christ. And I say, I can't go in and do that. that. That's just counter to who I am and what I believe. Jesus alone. Jesus will have no rival. The heart of Christianity is a personal submission of the believer to the authority of Jesus Christ, who is our Joshua, who is our Hosea. And that is what we are called to do. And again, one of the key solos of the Reformation, Christus Solus, Christ alone. He's the only mediator between God and man, the passage I read at the very beginning. And uh, he is the one who gives to us life and life eternal. What we basically are saying is that Jesus alone is the all-sufficient Savior. And if you add anything into or upon or on top of Christ, you are violating who he is. Jesus plus my attendance at church. Jesus plus my Bible reading. Jesus plus my heritage. My parents were godly people. They took me to church. I, I endured it. I sat through it. I slept through it, but that's good enough. Jesus plus anything is no salvation at all. And unfortunately, in, in our culture, in our day and age, in our Mer American Christianity especially, that's what it comes down to. 
is Jesus plus. Jesus plus my social action. Jesus plus my witnessing. Jesus plus, that's my salvation. We are so prone to do things and want to do things. I mean, we're good Americans. Come on. American is a can-do culture. We can make it. I won't get into that. <laughs> we pull it over under Christianity. And somehow we feel inadequate if we don't. And all the time, our adequacy is not in who we are or what we do. It's back in Christ. His active and passive obedience applied to our lives. So even when we sin, we don't have to make up for it. It's already been made up for. What we need is a new level of righteousness to be able not to sin, to progress from a full rebel into a full child of the living God. Question 30, do those who believe in the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who seek their salvation and welfare from saints themselves or anywhere else, know although they make their boast of him, yet in their deeds they deny the only Savior, Jesus? Kind of self-explanatory in what I've talked about. Um, passage from Galatians 5. Uh, if you accept circumcision, you've been severed from Christ. That not, doesn't mean that they once were and were not. They simply have said they widened the gulf between their acceptance. Uh, if you would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. It doesn't mean they were in grace. It means that they have fallen further away from the whole idea of grace. And it says, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope, the hope of righteousness. And that righteousness is Christ, not ours. And it finishes with that second part of the answer. For either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or they who by true faith receive the Savior must have in him all that is necessary to their salvation. And there's a couple verses there. This is the conclusion. The focus of these questions is not only who is Jesus, but the focus of these questions is are you really trusting in him and him alone? Scripture calls us to a constant inspection of our life. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ in, is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that you have not failed the test. And from 2 Peter uh, 1, 10, it says, make more... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election for sure. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Make it more sure. The call and the application of this Lord's Day is check, are you? Upon what are you believing and trusting for your salvation? And that's a serious question because on it holds your eternal, the balance of your whole life. Upon what? Jesus alone or Jesus plus? Second one will not save. 
the first one does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you could give to us such a precious, wonderful person and such a beautiful name. May we never be ones who take it in vain, not only by the words we use, but also by our relationship with him. May we not be Christ plus people, but, O oh Lord, so work in our hearts and our minds and our lives that Christ is the only Savior. He is the only one to whom we look for salvation and that we would absolutely surrender our whole life to him so that he may be preeminent. Kings and kingdoms may all fall away, but there is something about that name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.